As I get into my lesson in just a few moments, you're not going to believe how well that song fits into uh, the lesson that we're going to be sharing in this morning. Before I begin the lesson, let me just uh, share with you just a few things that I think is absolutely great. This man behind me, his name is Tata Dennis, and that's his wife, Patience, sitting next to him. I've known Tata for probably at least 25 years now. He is a preacher over in Cameroon, West Africa. In the years that I knew him, he worked as a farmer, uh, raising cocoa and plantain and uh, whatever else that he needed to do to make a, a living. He preached also at a congregation called Mato Village, which is one of the larger congregations on the west side of the country itself, and he was an incredible man. Several years back, probably about five, six years back now, uh, a civil war started over in Cameroon on the west side, which is English-speaking, on the other side, which is French-speaking, and so there's a... a uh, this um, war or civil war that has begun between them. And as a result of that, Tata was forced out of his uh, village by threat of his life and had to go into the bush. And, and later he would um, migrate over toward uh, the uh, French side and would find himself in Watutu, which is a school of preaching, which is an extension of Bear, Bear Valley a Bible Institute of Denver. And so he went to school there for about two years. And during that two-year period, Dennis is... He's just an, an incredible man. He's an incredible evangelist to begin with. And after, while he was there for those two years, he baptized over 50 people into Christ. Uh, I think the school's been there something like 12 years now, and he holds the record for the most uh, converts. I mean, he's just an incredible man. And we as a congregation began supporting him this year as one of our missionaries in Cameroon. And after graduating, here are some more of those that he brought into Christ by baptizing them. I had dozens of pictures of him doing this with other people, but uh, that's what he is doing. He's in a congregation called Tombell in Africa. And so please keep Dennis and his wife patience in your prayer as he uh, does the ministry there. I just wanted you to know who he was and to see him just a little bit better, an incredible person. Let me also remind our men of our Treasure Valley uh, Men's Rally. This is a great way of not only building up our faith, but also encouraging other men in sister congregations, maybe even a friend or someone that you work with, to be here, uh, the, that it's something that will really build their faith. This men's rally will. Uh, Chris McCurley is an incredible uh, preacher, and so let me encourage you to uh, men to be here and, and to take part in it. <clears throat> in the title song of the controversial rock uh, opera, Jesus Christ Superstar, in it, the chorus asks this question, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, who are you? What have you sacrificed? Jesus Christ, superstar, do you think you are what they say you are? That's been a question that has been asked down through the ages over almost two millennium now. People have asked that question, who exactly is, is Jesus? Well, there's been lots of different answers to that. Oftentimes, there usually reveals some inadequacy or some confusion about really who Jesus is and how he has impacted our world. But I'm thankful that as we open up the scriptures, we're able to identify who Jesus is and, and we can come to know him better. In fact, knowing Jesus, there's probably not anything more important in the world than knowing who he is and what he really is about as he makes you know, inroads into our, our lives. So as we think about knowing Jesus, there's a, a title that I want to share with you this morning that I think is a unique title that is ascribed 
to Jesus by John the Baptist over in John, the first chapter, around verse 29. I'd ask you to open your Bibles to that section of Scripture there. As you turn there, I want you to dial in on verses 6 and following, if you would. There it says, There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came for a witness that he might bear witness of the light that might all believe through him. He is not the light, but came that he might bear witness of the light. So John the Baptist comes on the scene. And after 400 years of silence, because God says, I'm done talking with your people, he quit talking to the people through the, the prophets, the many different kinds of ways that he would communicate. Malachi says that he would just stop doing so. So for over 400 years, there's been silence in the land. And then all of a sudden, John the Baptist comes on the scene, a very unique a different looking individual, and he begins to talk about the Messiah that was to come, calling people to repentance that the kingdom of heaven was at, at hand. And his notoriety grows greatly, and as his notoriety grows greatly, people begin to go out from all the environs and from Jerusalem, and they're going out into the wilderness around Salem, Anon near Salem, and, and they're going out towards the Jordan, and they're trying to find a time that they can listen to what uh, John the Baptist has to say, and many are being baptized in those places. The result is, is that the Pharisees become aware of the notoriety of John, and so they send a delegation of Levites and, <clears throat> and priests, and they go out in order that they might question John about exactly who are you. If you look over at verses 19 and following, he begins to answer their questions. Here's what it says here. And, at this, and this is the witness of John, that when the Jews sent him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed that he did not, not deny, and he confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. They said to them, then who are you? So that we may give answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet had said. He would later tell them that of this one that is coming before him, that he's not even worthy to unlatch his sandals, and that he must increase and that I must decrease. That's John the Baptist as he answers their, their questions. He said, I came to prepare the way for the Messiah to come. That was what he was about. In the context, the next day, he is standing along with his disciples, and he looks, and he sees Jesus coming. And as he sees Jesus coming, he says of him, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. That's what he said about him. This is this incredible title when you think about it. So John declares to the masses, he is now going to identify who Jesus really is, his true identity. Not only to the masses, but also to the Jewish established, he begins to lay it out before him because the time for secrecy has passed and now the time for truth has come. And so he lays out before them. John knows who Jesus is. He knows Jesus personally simply because of the fact that he is his cousin and that he had been born 15 months before Jesus came on the scene. He may have heard the stories of how, how Mary had become a pregnant with child without uh, Joseph, but by the Holy Spirit. He may have heard of those kinds of things. So Jesus was unique in that way. Probably just his life 
how he grew in stature and in wisdom before men. John probably was aware of some of that. But here's what he mostly knew about him. He knew that there was something divine about Jesus because Jesus came to John and John uh, to John to ask him to be baptized by John. And John at first refused to do so. But then he decides to go ahead and baptize them. And as they go down into the Jordan, he baptizes them. He immerses him in water. When he comes out, it says that the spirit of dove came down and lighted upon Jesus. And John heard a voice from heaven that said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So John knows something about it. If you look at verse 32 of this same chapter, John 1, you'll see it says, And I, John, beheld this. I saw this and heard this with my own eyes and with my own ears. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And I thought to myself as I was reading about this and, and reading the description of Jesus as the Lamb of God, I thought to myself, that's interesting. As you think about the Lamb of God, of God, why would he use that kind of description of him? Why would he introduce the Messiah as a lamb? I mean, why not behold the Lion of Judah or behold the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords or behold the Prince of Peace or behold the Mighty Counselor? But he doesn't do that. He announces him as a lamb. Lambs. There doesn't seem to be a lot of strength in a lamb, not much majesty, uh, not as much meaning, at least to the first glance of it, because generally we don't associate strength or power or rule with a lamb, do we? We think of him as a lion. We think of him as something much stronger than that. Think about just the sports teams, the professional sports teams that we have and the names that we, they, they give themselves. They don't call themselves the Las Vegas Lambs. It's the Las Vegas Raiders, the Los Angeles Rams. They don't call themselves the, the Los Angeles Lambs or the Boise State Lambs. There's no strength in that kind of thing because when you think about a lamb, well, a, a lamb is, you know, they're cute. Lambs are, are, are cuddly. When they are born, they're absolutely defenseless. They're awkward. They're clumsy. They have a knack for, for losing themselves and getting into, into, into trouble. They're all the things that you would not think a ruler would be or someone of great majesty or power would be. And yet John chooses to refer to Jesus as the Lamb of, of God. And the reason is, is because the title actually has a lot of prestige in it. God had ingrained within the mind of the Jewish people the importance of a lamb. The lambs represented sacrifice and that lambs represented the forgiveness of sins. And they, and they understood that, that God would make atonement for the people's sins, setting at once the world at one with God. The word atonement is a word that, you know, we don't hear a lot these days. But the word atonement means to be satisfied or to appease, to compensate, um, to propitiate. You may have heard First uh, John, the second chapter in verse two, verse one says, my little children do not sin, but if you do, you have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, and he is the propitiation for the sins of the world, but not for our, for our sins, but not for ours only, but for those of the world. That word propitiation means the satisfaction or the atoning sacrifice, the appeasement that God does between himself and mankind. Jesus was that go-between. He was that one 
that would save his people from his sin. And so there's probably not a better title to describe the purpose and the mission for why Jesus came into the world, and that is to take the world's sins away. Behold the Lamb of God. Where do you think their minds went as they thought about the Lamb of God? <clears throat> well, I thought about that. One could be is maybe they were thinking about Abraham's sacrifice as he took his son up on the mountain. God said, take your son Isaac, your only son Isaac, and take him up on the mountain and sacrifice him. And Abram, with broken heart, no doubt did so. And he and Isaac went up there and he built an altar and he gathered the wood. And his son says, Father, where's the sacrifice? And, I, and Abram says, the Lord will provide. He raises his hand above his son, getting ready to slay him and God stays his hand and in a thicket was a ram that would be the sacrifice in place of his son or maybe their minds went all the way back maybe 3,500 years before Jesus day when the children of Israel had been in captivity in Egypt for over 400 years and God is going to liberate them and God tells them through Moses that they are to slay a yearling lamb without any blemish whatsoever, and they are to kill the lamb and take its blood, and they are to put it on the doorpost and the lintel of the house in which they live. And God's thought, promise to them is that when I pass over Israel, all the firstborn of not only man, a beast, is going to die, but those who have this blood of this lamb over it will live. And God passed over the land of Egypt. No one died in all the families of Israel, but in the house of the Egyptians, the firstborn all died, as well as their animals, and there was great wailing in Egypt. They're so struck that Pharaoh will finally say, get out of the country, just go, leave, take your people, take your possessions, and go, and they are liberated. And because of that, for 3,500 years, the children of Israel, once a year, would celebrate the Passover feast. In remembrance of that time of liberation, in fact, it's during that very moment, the Passover, that Jesus will spend the last night of his life with his disciples, and they will be partaking of the Passover, and during the Passover, Jesus will take the cup, and he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins, and so he links himself as the Lamb of God back to that Paschal Lamb 3,500 years later, and that's why when we gathered around the table here just a few moments ago, and we partook of the fruit of the vine, that's what we were doing. We were partaking of that blood of Jesus, the blood of the Lamb of God. And so that may have been where their minds went. Another place that I think probably their minds went, and no, it's where my mind went, was to the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53, verses 1 through 11. Actually, it goes down to verse 12. Open your Bibles to that section of Scripture. It's, it's an incredible section of Scripture, by the way. Isaiah 53. Listen to what Isaiah writes. He's writing about a suffering uh, servant. Almost all theologians, I don't think there's not anyone who doesn't believe that this is talking about Jesus Christ. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of a parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom the men hide their face, he was despised and we esteemed him not. 
Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and was afflicted, and yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who, cons who uh, considered that he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people to whom the stroke was due. He gave, his grave was assigned with the wicked men, yet with rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, we shall, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. I'm here to tell you that there's no way that we can plumb into all the depths of this chapter because there's just so much there. And so you'll have to do that on your own when you have time. But to really plumb into it, there are some things I want to share here. You see, Isaiah, he paints a, a picture that is almost like a paradox. By paradox, I mean it's, it's tragic to think that the sinless son of God, this servant who did nothing wrong, was, there was no deceit found in his mouth, anything that was there, that he would bear the sins of the world and would die on the cross for the world. That seems almost tragic, but at the same time, it's beautiful. Because there is no other way that God could bring us back into a relationship with him than by his son, the Lamb of God, being slayed for the sins of the, the, the many. So it is a paradox. It's tragic, and yet at the same time, it's beautiful. It's much like what you feel almost any given Sunday morning. There are Sunday mornings when you gather here, and we gather around the Lord's table, and we're broken down as we think about, you know, that Jesus had to die for my sins. And at the same time, it's beautiful because we rejoice in the fact that he did so. And as we sang that last song, you know, and you think about what he did for us and how he bore mine so that I could be a God, that's an incredible a message in and of itself. In the day of Christ dying, there was the dam of God's patience and the flood of God's wrath. The day that Christ was placed upon the cross, God said that Christ was guilty of all the sins of the world, having become a curse through his crucifixion. And on that day, God placed the sin of humanity on his servant. And Christ came between us and the wrath of God so that we might be free of any guilt. So there's times when we feel absolutely undone because of our sins and, and we are reminded of our sins and then we, by God's love and by his grace, know that we have been made well and we have been healed because of what he has done. A couple of favorite passages of mine are 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. There it says, he took him, that's Jesus who knew no sin, and made him sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
Or 1 Peter 2 in verse 24. He bore our sins in his body on the cross. Why? So that we might become the righteousness of God once again. That's what Jesus did as he came to this world. You know, it's such a beautiful picture of Jesus coming in a manger, this cuddly baby being lying there. But to know that his ultimate destination was going to be going to the cross to bear the sins of the world is one that we celebrate, but at the same time, it grieves us because he went through that. So what Isaiah is saying here is that we are guilty of offending the God of, of heaven and that because of our sin, we have severed our relationship with him. And hence, we are in need of being brought back into a relationship or restored back into a relationship with God. But we have a problem. And the problem that we have is that we have sin in our lives. Romans 3 and verse 23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 10 says, there's none righteous, no, not one. And so he puts us in our place. And in our place is the fact that we are sinners and there's nothing that we can possibly do. We can't live a good enough life. We can't eat enough Lord's suppers. We can't sing enough songs. We can't go to church enough. There's not anything that we can possibly do to appease God or to satisfy God or to compensate God or to propitiate ourselves is an absolute impossibility. Only God can do that. And so he sends his son and that's that we need a lamb to be sacrificed on our behalf. And so behold the lamb. Enter the Lamb of God. Notice what it says here in verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Grief is an interesting word. The word grief here actually means sickness. He has bore our, our sickness. What kind of sickness? He's talking about that we are, we are sin sick. That, that, there, that we are, are uh, so ill that we cannot save ourselves. And of course, the consequences of spiritual sickness is spiritual death. And that's what Romans 6 and verse 23 says. The wages of sin is death. If you look at Ephesians 2 and verse 1, he says, We were dead in our transgressions and sins which we once formerly walked according to the prince of this world against the powers of this world. That's where we were. We were dead in sin. We had died because of sin. The wages, that which we have earned for ourselves, is death, and yet God, because of his great love, says that the lamb will pick up your sins. He will bear your sins. He will carry your sins for you. And that's incredible when you think about it. The reasons for the lamb's death, but he was, look at the words, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities upon him, the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds or with his stripes, we are healed. When you think about those kinds of words, I mean, they really impact us. A number of years ago, Mel Gibson, he made a movie called The Passion of Christ. And in The Passion of Christ, the movie itself it depicts Jesus being beaten on the pavement in what is called the intermediate death as soldiers took a cat of nine tails and beat him on his back and then rolled him over and beat him on his stomach and beat him from his head down to his, his soles of his feet. One person said to me after watching, says, there's no way that Jesus could have looked that bad. Another person said, there's no way Jesus could have looked that good. I guess it's all perception, but I think... In my mind, he probably looked that, that bad, if not much worse. The imagery is one of one who has been mutilated by a spear, 
and then buried beneath the load, so, so cru- such a crushing force that, it, that anything beneath it would be pulverized when the lamb bore our sins. That's what I'm talking about. Yes, his, his side was pierced with a, with a spear, but it was more than that. He was crushed. Was he crushed by a cat of nine tails? Was he crushed when they put nails in his hands and pulled his arms out of a joint? Was he crushed when they put nails in his feet? Where Was he crushed when he hung on the cross? No, he is crushed when he bore the sins of the world, your sins and, and my sins. Verse 4 says that the result of that is that people want to turn their face away from that to see what Jesus has bore. And so I don't know about you, but that's my inclination is when I see a picture like that of Jesus dying on the cross, bearing my sins, my response is that I don't want to look at this. Why is that? Because I don't want to be confronted with the fact that what Jesus went through and the reason that he, Jesus went to the cross and hung on the cross and was beaten the way he was, was because of me. It was my sins that took him there and brought him there to that point. So physically, it was crushing. Spiritually, it was absolutely pulverizing for Jesus to die on the cross. It would wrench the words, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The first time in all eternity, the Son and the Father were at one. And in that moment, when he bore your sins and my sins upon the cross, when all of humanity's sins were laid upon him, those were his words. He knew. I mean, he's the epitome of, of 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21. He took him, Jesus, who knew no sin and made him sin on our behalf. I thought to myself, what, what wondrous love is this? What wondrous love is this, that God would take his son and allow him to die for me and for you. For God so loved the world. Lord, do you not know how bad this world is? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, only one of a kind, unique, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Or Romans 5 and verse 8 says, while we were helpless, while we were ungodly, God demonstrated his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How much love does God have for us? Well, God's love is so strong, it goes so far beyond how we look at things that his son would die on the cross. He would give his son in order that you might be saved. Look at what he says. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. And the Lord have laid on him the iniquity of us all. You named the sin and we've chased after it and have committed it as a, as a race or as human beings. And yet Jesus came into this world for that very purpose. Notice that Isaiah says, all we, he includes himself in that. He's not just pointing fingers at, fingers at the Jewish community. He's not just pointing fingers at the world. He said, all we have gone astray. And we know that that certainly does involve each and every one of us in this. And the result of God's wrath comes down like a hammer on the anvil. And when it comes, it comes down and strikes violently. But it doesn't strike violently the sheep. In fact, if you look at verse 1, it says, Whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That's talking about the power and the strength of God's arm and how by wrath he violently comes down, not on the sheep, but on the Lamb of God. 
So when I say to you that by his wounds we are healed, when I say to you that we, are, that we have pierced him, that he has been crushed, that's the idea of being crushed, pulverized, in order that we might be saved. All we like have gone, sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Our waywardness. Living according to our own standards, doing whatever we want, whenever we want. The sin that separates us from God, God took and laid those upon the Son and reveals his arm. So Jesus Christ, when you think about him, Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the world's sin. He is the Lamb that came to bear our sins. He is the Lamb of whom Almighty God has dumped the sins of the world. It is our sins, yours and mine, that pierced him. It is our sins, yours and mine, that crushed him. John Newton, who was once a slaver and was converted, if you will. You may not agree with all of his theology, but he wrote a poem that I think that says a little bit what I've been trying to communicate to you this morning. Here's what he said. In evil long I took delight, unawed by shame or fear, till a new object struck my sight and stopped my wild career. I saw one hanging on a tree in agonies and blood, who fixed his languid eyes on me as near the cross I stood. Sure, never till my last, latest breath can I forget that look. It seemed he charged me with his death, though not a word I spoke. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw my sins his blood had spilt and it helped, and helped to nail him there. Alas, I knew not what I did, but now my tears are vain. Where shall my trembling soul be hid? For I, the Lord, have slain. A second look he gave, which said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for thy ransom pain. I died that you might live. Thus, while that his death my sin displays in all its blackest hue, such is the mystery of grace, it seals my pardon too. With pleasing grief and mournful joy, my soul now if filled, that I should such a life destroy, yet live by him I killed. That's what Jesus did for us. Jesus bore all of our sins on the cross. So when John turns around and he sees Jesus walking toward him, he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Listen, that is not flattery. In fact, it's just the opposite. By him saying and announcing, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, it's the kiss of death. Because he knows where it's going to land him and where it's going to lead him. The Lamb of God is going to die for the sins of the world. The Bible says that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. Jesus reminded or told his disciples, and we're reminded of that today, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. Who are, who's the many? Well, that's you and me. We are the many that that blood has been poured out Four, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of Richard, who takes away the sins of Mike, who takes away the sins of April, 
who takes away the sins of David, who takes away the sins of Jeremy, who takes away, well, it took away all of our sins, didn't it? What wondrous love this is. In a few moments, we're going to sing this song, What Can Wash Away My Sins? And the answer is nothing but the blood of Jesus. When God looks down from heaven, the only thing that matters is that he sees the blood of the Lamb applied to the doorposts of your heart. Here's the question as I close this morning is this. Do you know the Lamb? I mean, we're talking about knowing Jesus, the most important thing in the world. Do you know the Lamb? And of course, the next, are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? And if not, why not do so this day? If you have not come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, now is the day to do it. Now is the day of salvation. You may not have another day. Today is the day of salvation, to accept the Lamb, to be washed in the Lamb. If you're subject in any way, won't you come while together we stand and